I was a little slow getting on stage there. I lost my place in the Bible. I was like, oh, I better find that while I've still got time. Then I ran out of time. Hey, stuff happens, okay? When we read stories from the Bible, we have a tendency to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the characters in the story, don't we? And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Like, it's really hard to read the story of David and Goliath and not imagine yourself as David staring down the giant. Or you read the story maybe of like the disciples and they're on the Sea of Galilee and there's this huge storm that rolls in and Peter, of course, sees Jesus walking on the water and he's the dude that has enough faith to step out of the boat and to walk toward Jesus on the water. It's really like when I read that, I put myself in that position. I'm like, would I, would I have that much faith in an epic situation like that? Would I be able to respond with that level of faith and confidence in God? And then when we read the book of Job, which is where we've been studying for the last four or five weeks now, we tend to put ourselves into Job's shoes. So we read what happened to him and we think, okay, well, the Bible says that Job was a really good guy. And I think to myself, well, I'm a good guy. So I'm kind of like Job. And then it says Job had all of these losses and tragedies and hurts and heartaches. And I'm like, boy, I've had my fair share of hurts and loss and tragedy and heartache. So when I read the book of Job, it's easy to put myself into the place of Job. But remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you guys that I actually think that the, the person of Job is not meant to reflect or represent us. Actually, Job is meant to represent Jesus. And we spent a whole Sunday morning talking about how Job points us towards Jesus who suffered and died, but he didn't do it um, needlessly or meaninglessly, but he did it to affect salvation so that we could all have new life and new hope through him. You should go back and check out that message if you don't, uh, if you don't remember it or you missed that one. Now, I'm not saying that there's nobody in the book of Job that is meant to represent us because there is actually there's a group of people that we are supposed to see ourselves in when we read the book of Job. And the group of people that are meant to represent us are Job's three friends. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, wait, 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 wait. They're the bad guys in the story, right? Like, aren't they the ones that get it wrong? They say all the wrong things. They do all the wrong things. Yes. Wait, you're saying I'm supposed to be the bad guy in the story? Well, I'm not saying you're a bad guy or anything like that. But here's the deal. We find out that Job's three friends, they have a misunderstanding of who God is and the way that God runs the world. They have a misbelief about their father in heaven. And this misunderstanding, this misbelief, it is so dramatic and it's so important that it actually colors, it, it negatively impacts their view of who their father in heaven is. They can't see him clearly because of this misbelief they have about him. And because of this false thing they believe about God, they actually are not able to see one another clearly as a result either. This misbelief, it messes up their vertical relationship and it, it really compromises their horizontal relationship as well. Now, the reason that I say that we are represented by them in this story is that it turns out many Christians in the modern world, in fact, I would go so far as to say many of you in the room today have the same misbelief about God that they had. You just don't realize it. The same misunderstanding of who God our Father is, how He works, how He operates, how He runs the universe, we've bought into a lie that is not found in the scripture. It's found more from the culture around us or from human logic and intuition. And just like it did for Job's friends, if you don't address this false belief that you might carry around about God, it is going to impact your ability to see Him clearly as your loving Heavenly Father. And it's going to prevent you from having the kind of healthy, life-giving, godly relationships that you were created to experience. This is a very, very serious question to ask. 
Have I made the same mistake as Job's friends? Well, let's find out. We're going to start by reading in Job chapter number two, okay? So in Job chapter number two, we're going to be introduced to his friends. But before we get there, let me set the scene just a little bit. Remember, uh, there's been this kind of discussion in heaven between God and the devil, and they kind of offer up Job as a test case. If we were to take away his prosperity, if we were to take away his health, would Job still love and serve God? So in chapter one, chapter two, the first part of chapter two, we read about how Job goes through incredible loss. He loses his business. He loses his employees. He loses his livestock. He loses his reputation. He loses his children. He loses his health. And in the middle of all of this tragedy and loss, we read in verse number 11 about the friends. The Bible says, when three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and to console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes and threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words." wait, I thought you said these were the bad guys. They sound like really great friends, right? Like Job's bros turn out to be like, they start out at least as wonderful counselors, fantastic friends. These are exactly the kind of people you want around you when life falls apart. Notice that when Job is at his lowest point, they come running towards him. We find out later, if we skip ahead to chapter number 42, we learn a really interesting detail. We're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks. Job had a large extended family. He had a lot of brothers and sisters and cousins and many other friends. And when all of this tragedy befalls him, where are they? Not a single one of them comes to comfort him. Not a single one of them shows up. In fact, it's not until chapter 42, when Job's fortunes are completely restored, that his family shows up again. When he gets his health back, when he gets his wealth back, when his family starts to grow, they're like, oh, hey, Job, it's been great. How you been, man? It's good to see you, okay? These friends, though, when Job is at his lowest, they don't keep their distance. They draw close. They come running in his time of need. Can we just pause for a moment and thank God for godly friends? Woo! Godly friends are such a blessing. Thank God that there are people that will draw close to us when times are tough instead of keeping their distance. If you have that kind of friendship, those people that will love you no matter what's going on in your life, those people that will keep you encouraged, keep you challenged. If you have those kind of people in your life, you should actively and intentionally thank God for them because not everybody has those kinds of relationships. They are a gift from our father in heaven. Hey, I think you should go a step further than that. If you have some of those relationships, particularly if they're like in the room right now, you should actively and intentionally thank them for being that kind of friend in your life. Like you should be like pointing at somebody on the other side of the room. You should be nudging the person next to you. If they are that kind of friend who's there in the thick and thin, who is bonded to you by their shared faith in Jesus and the love of God, man, that is a big blessing because again, not everybody has that. I was speaking with a young lady um, who attends our church this week and I was talking to her about her friendships and I was like, tell me about your best friendships because I'm talking about friendships in the message. So give me a little... Uh, 
uh, give me a little perspective here. And uh, she started telling me about her very best friend. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, how did you guys meet? And she said, well, we met at Connect Church. Immediately, my heart, like the Grinch, just grew three sizes. I was like, oh, that makes me so happy. We're called Connect Church for a reason. I want you guys to have meaningful, life-giving, happy relationships with one another. So I was like, how did this come about? And so she started telling me, well, you remember that series we did a few months ago called We Are? And you did that message, We Are Friendly, or at least we're supposed to be friendly. Maybe we could do some work here. You guys remember that? That was that message. You remember the one? Okay. You remember. Uh, if not, go to YouTube. It's worth a watch. Anyway. She said, you challenged us in that message that friendships were not going to happen by accident. And you said, best thing for you to do today is to go out and to just stand around in the lobby and start trying to talk to people. Be weird, be awkward, strike up a conversation with absolutely anybody you can and intentionally try to develop some relationships. You challenged us in the message. Find a, find a person that you're connecting with and get their phone number or exchange social media information, whatever it takes so that a friendship can start to blossom. And so she said, it was scary, but I did it. I went and I stood out there and and uh, I saw a girl that, you know, we started chatting and next thing you know, we were vibing. It just seemed like there was a good connection there. And so I took a bold step and we exchanged contact information. And over the, the several months since that morning, she's become, if not my best friend, one of my very best friends. If I've got an issue, I go to her first. She's the first person I text. She's the first person to offer to pray for me. She's the first person to encourage me when I'm struggling and feeling down. I am so thrilled to hear stories like that. Thank God for godly friends. There are godly people in this room right now that want to be your friend that want to help you become the person that God created you to be. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, you cannot be the person that God created you to be without their influence in your life. Nobody is an island. Christianity is a team sport. We need one another in order to grow in our faith. Job had that kind of friendship. Many of you do. And if you don't, you can. This room is full of people just like that. Now, Job's friends also started out really well here in chapter number two, because they understood something that we often forget. And that is when somebody's going through a hard time, most of the time, what they need is somebody just to be present with them. They don't need answers. They don't need solutions. They don't need advice. They just need somebody to say, I'm here with you. I'm suffering with you. Your hurt is my hurt. Your pain is my pain. I, I, I want to walk through this with you. I don't know what it is about men in particular. I know some ladies that do this too. But like when somebody is having a hard time, we want to show up with the solutions. We want to give the answers so you can get out of this season and into the next one. And I understand the impulse and the, the motivation behind it is good, but it's not always very helpful. In fact, when somebody's going through the greatest tragedy of life, loss, loss of health, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, whatever it might be, giving them advice is one of the worst things you can do. Even if it's good advice, they're probably not ready to receive it. What they need is for somebody to simply sit with them. The Bible tells us here in that passage we read that for seven days and seven nights, Job's friends sat in the dirt with him. And nobody said a word because they knew his suffering was too great for words to address. Oh, we need that kind of friendship. We call this the ministry of presence, the willingness to be with somebody when you don't have anything to say, but your presence communicates a whole lot. 
a willingness to say, I I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know what decision you should make, but I'm going to pray with you until God reveals a way forward, until he solves your problem, until he gives you direction. I am here with you. I'm not going to leave you alone in this. Job's friends were such great examples of people who were willing to do this. And you know, this is what the scripture calls us to do as Christians. This is like the stuff that should mark us. When people think about Christians, they should think about people who do this kind of thing. Romans chapter number 12, verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Proverbs 17 says, a true friend loves at all times. On your friend's best days, when your friend's acting the fool, you love them because you're a true friend. A great friend is going to share in our triumphs and tragedies. And in Job chapter number two, these three buddies, they started off doing exactly what they should have. So where does it go wrong? Like if Job's friends had just shown up and sat and loved on him, everything would have been great. They would be the best examples of godly friendship in the entire Bible. But then they started talking, okay? Rather than showing up and loving on Job and listening to Job and lamenting with Job, they started lecturing Job. They started telling him all these sorts of things that really, it it changed the course of what was happening. I think Job could have had a much easier time in this whole season of life if he had some friends who would have just been present instead of opening their mouths. So here's what happens. In chapter number two, his friends show up. Grief is so great. They sit for a week. Nobody says a word. Finally, in in, uh, chapter three, so in the Jewish religion, in the Old Testament, there was a prescribed season of mourning, a prescribed time of mourning. So somebody died, then the family, the community was expected to mourn for seven days. And then at the end of seven days, it was time to get up, wash your face, change your clothes. You got to start reintegrating into society. So you've got seven days, you don't have to work. People are going to be there to take care of you. But at the end of the week of mourning, you're supposed to kind of start to move on with life. But how many of you guys know at the end of seven days, Job's grief was just beginning. Like, it's not like, oh, week has passed. Now I'm okay with the fact that all my kids have passed. No. So he is still in the middle of all of his hurt and heartache and his friends are starting to get up and dust themselves off and it's time to get going. In chapter number three, when the seven days have ended, Job just lets loose. We're not gonna read it, but I challenge you to read it. Go read Job chapter number three and you will find him expressing the deepest heartache of nearly anybody in the entire Bible. Reading it through a modern lens, we would say, oh, Job is suffering from acute depression, acute depression. He's saying he is cursing the day that he died, the day that he was born. He was like, why was I ever born? I wish I hadn't existed. It would be better for me if I had never drawn a breath in this world. And we would say, Job is actually saying some stuff that would qualify as like suicidal ideation. Like he is basically saying it would be better off if I were dead. I wish I weren't here anymore. I don't want to deal with this pain. And so in that moment, you would expect his friends to say, oh, Job needs us. And they're going to intervene and they're going to engage with him and they're going to be kind and they're going to console him and they're going to comfort him. And they're going to say things like, Job, oh my gosh, I cannot understand how hard this is for you. And boy, uh, I don't know what I could possibly say to make this any better, but I, I hope that you'll remember that you're still alive. You woke up today. You have a wife. There is a future ahead of you. I don't know what that future looks like, but things are not over. There's still hope. That's what you would expect Job's friends to say, but they don't fact, from chapters 34 to 38, instead of comforting and consoling Job, they confront Job. 
And every single one of his three friends' speeches goes something like this. Job, man, this is terrible, dude. I am sorry about all this you're going through. But you got to start acknowledging at some point that you're the one who's responsible for all of this. You caused this. It's your fault that your children died. It's really what they say to him. And the reason they say that is because they are convinced that Job has committed some secret sin and God is punishing him for this secret sin. And so their speeches are always saying to Job, best thing you can do is just fess up to whatever it was that you must have done wrong, beg God to forgive you, and then get back in his good graces so he doesn't keep attacking and punishing you. That is what his friends say. It's like the most heartless thing you could ever imagine saying to a dad who's just lost his kids. You know, this is probably your fault. You should just acknowledge that. Oh my goodness. Each one of the speeches actually can be summarized by the words of Eliphaz in chapter number four, verses seven to eight. So this is the first speech that one of his friends even gives. First thing one of his friends says, and his friend says to him, stop and think, Job. Do the innocent die prematurely? So the, the, the implicit question, if we were to kind of turn it around here, is if somebody dies prematurely, they're not innocent. They're guilty, right? What does that say about your kids? What does it say about you, a man who has all this death around him? Innocent people don't, don't die prematurely, so you must not be innocent. When have the upright been destroyed? Eliphaz says, my experience shows the people who plant trouble and cultivate evil harvest the same. So Eliphaz, Job's friends, all three of them are saying, if you've got bad things going on in life, it's because you brought about those bad things through some secret sin. How did Job's friends go from being the perfect example of what you should do in the moment to being the perfect example of what you should never say to somebody who is suffering at this level. How could they not just double down on this strategy, but triple down on it for 34 chapters? Wow. His friends keep telling him, this is because of your sin. You need to confess. You got to address this and deal with it or you're never going to get any better. How could they double down? How could they triple down? How could they say something so awful? Here's the key. Every person in the book of Job has the wrong idea of God, including Job. Every human being says stuff about God in this book, in this text, that is not true. And it's possible perhaps even likely that you share the same false view of God that they did. Okay. I can summarize this. I can kind of help you to understand what this false view was. We can illustrate their worldview using a triangle. Okay. So we're going to put a triangle here on the screen. And uh, basically the, the people in Job's story, they believed three things. They, they assumed that three things in life were true. So they start with this idea of God's justice. God is just, he's right, he is good, he will do what is right, God will never do what is wrong, God will never do evil, God will always do what is good and right and just. That is an assumption that they make. The second assumption that they make is about Job's righteousness. Job is a good guy or Job is not a good guy. Job is confident he is. In fact, the, the scripture tells us here in chapter number one that Job is a righteous man. And so uh, one of the pillars of their worldview is that Job is a good guy. And then the third point here is what we might call, philosophers call, the retribution principle. I know that's kind of a fancy word. So let me define it for you, okay? The retribution principle is an idea. It's a worldview. It's an assumption 
about the way that the world operates that essentially says good people get good things and bad people get bad things. Do good and you will be blessed, but misbehave and you will be cursed. Are you with me? Behave, be blessed. That's the retribution principle. So Job and his friends, they all operate in a worldview in which these three things are true. God is just, Job is good, and good people should get good things. Now this perspective, this triangle, it holds up, it's in equilibrium as long as Job's life is going well. But the moment things fall apart, one of these three has to go. They can't all three be true if Job is suffering the way that he is. And so we can actually define the perspectives of each of the each side of this discussion and debate from chapters 30, uh, sorry, from chapters 4 to 38. We can define and describe it using this triangle. So we'll start with Job, okay? Job starts with absolute conviction in his own righteousness. He's like, I'm a good dude. I don't care what these guys say. I don't have any secret sin. I am righteous. And as I mentioned, we know he's correct because in chapter number one, we're told Job was the most righteous man in the entire area. Nobody was like him in his commitment and faithfulness to God. So Job says, I'm not giving up this corner of the triangle because I know I'm righteous. Job also says, if you listen to his speeches, I know that good people get good things and bad people get bad things. That's a law of the universe. Of course, that's the way the world operates. So I'm not giving up on that corner, which means the only thing left is for Job to give up on God's justice and goodness. And if you read the book of Job, that's exactly what happens. Again, I've told you guys, we usually skip the whole middle section of the book. And so we don't understand the things that Job says. Most of what Job says is out and out blasphemy. <laughs> like if you guys said that to me, I'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. You might want to step out of my office. I'm not trying to get struck by lightning by the crazy things you're saying right now. Job says God is unjust. He's unfair. He's cruel. Job demands that God shows up and answer for his crimes against him. Job is out and out on this top point of the triangle. He's like, God cannot be good. I know I'm good and I know good people are supposed to get good things, but God is not keeping up his end of the bargain. Now, Job's friends take a different approach and they say, wait, 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 don't you dare question God's justice. We know God is always good. God always does what is right. God always does justice. So it can't be that one. And then they basically say, we know that good people get good things and bad people get bad things. Of course, that's the way the world works. So the only corner left to give in on is your righteousness. And so they say to Job, you must have sinned. You must have done something in secret. So you need to confess it in order to bring back the equilibrium. We see how this triangle represents both of their views. All right. And it's not hard for us to understand that you and I operate according to this same triangle, even in 2023. We really do. Like you may not use these words, but come on, let's just be real for a moment. We often live with the mindset that life is good because I'm behaving, therefore God is blessing me. Life is going well because God blesses those who do what's right. And if I do what's right, God's gonna bless me and life is going well. And if life is not going well, well, then we have to compromise on one of these other sides of the triangle. And listen, we do. Here's what will happen. If life is going well, you can work your way around the triangle and it all makes sense. Your worldview holds up quite nicely. But the moment you get a cancer diagnosis or the moment your partner says, I'm filing papers or the moment you take a big faith step for God and fall flat on your face, 
Suddenly, one of those three has to go. And so what will happen, I see this with Christians all the time. Some Christians then will give up on God's justice. They'll say, well, I don't even know if God exists because I've done all the things I'm supposed to do and life has not gone the way it's supposed to. So either God is not good or God does not exist. I don't know. I don't care, but it can't be true because I'm confident in my goodness and I'm confident that good people are supposed to have good things happening. Other people will take the track that Job's friends did and they'll say, oh, no, no, no. God is good. And we know that good people always get good things and bad people always get bad things. So if there is some bad that's happening in my life, it's because secretly I must be sinful. I know what's going on right now. God is punishing me for that thing that I did two years ago. Like I thought I had confessed it. I thought I had like repented and given it to him, but clearly I must not have because he's still punishing me over that thing. See, they're giving up one side of the triangle. This idea, okay, that these three things start to fall apart. One of them has to go whenever, um, whenever life goes bad. We don't think in these terms, but if we would, we would start to, to have some questions like maybe, just maybe you've realized that so far, we've only questioned two sides of the triangle. Did you notice that? Like nobody has yet examined the retribution principle. The idea that if I behave, I'll be blessed. The idea that if I misbehave, I'll always be cursed. The idea that good things have to happen to good people and bad things have to happen to bad people. Nobody has ever questioned whether or not that's true. Here's what I think. The entire middle portion of the book of Job, maybe even the entire book of Job is designed to get you to understand that if one of these three has to go, it's that one in the bottom left that needs to go. The retribution principle is not true. It's not accurate. It is not biblical. Maybe this is hard for you to see because that phrase retribution principle is a little like, I don't know, philosophical, academic, kind of foreign. What does it even mean? So let me redefine for you what the retribution principle is in a way that's going to connect and make sense for you in an instant. The retribution principle is really just karma dressed up with different language. It's karma. Most Christians believe that God operates the world according to some law of karma. What, is, what does karma say? Karma says, if I do good things, I will get good things in response. If I behave, I will be blessed. You say, no, I don't believe in karma. I'm a Christian. Karma is a Buddhist thing. It's a Hindu thing. I, I would never agree to karma as a Christian. Have you ever asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Has that ever bothered you? Implicit in that question is a belief that only good things should happen to good people. Who says that? Who, who believe, like who said that if you're a quote unquote good person, and boy, are there questions about how we even define that. But hey, if you're a good person, then only good things should happen to you. You didn't hear that in the Bible. That didn't come from the scripture. That may have come from other faith systems. You might've picked it up from some movies. You might've picked it up from some friends, but that is not the Christian teaching. My friends, the Christian teaching is that God deals with us according to the principle of grace, yes. not the law of karma. Come on. 
And thank God he does. Rather than a simplified system of reward and punishment for our behavior, in Jesus, God inverts that entire system on its head. He doesn't say good people will only get good things and bad people will always get bad things. No, do you understand in God's economy, the only good person that ever existed in history got punished. He got killed. Wow. And in God's economy, all of the people like me and you who are guilty and we deserve to be treated according to our sins, we got forgiven. The Bible tells us in Psalm 103, God has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not repaid us according to our iniquities. If God operated according to a law of karma, we would all be in trouble. But because God works upon a principle of grace in which I don't get punished for every wrong thing I do. And every good thing that happens in my life is not somehow, um, you know, reward for being good in life. Because he works this way, I get to have a different kind of relationship with God. One that is not based on my behavior. One that is not based on performance. One that is not based on fear of constantly falling short and angering God and ruining my life. I get to have a relationship in which I say, I am, I know, I know that I am loved by my father in heaven on my good days and my bad days, when I get it right and when I get it wrong. Remember, we said that's the definition of a great friend. Somebody who's there with you at all times, no matter what it is that you've done, no matter where, uh, what, what you might be going through in life. If it's true of people, how much more must it be true of God? That he would be there with us and love us on our best days and our worst days. In the middle of our temptations and failures or on the mountaintops, we can have confidence that God deals with us according to a principle of grace and not a law of karma. Amen and hallelujah. My goodness, that's... Whew. There are other examples of people falling victim to this mindset in the scripture. Um, There's this instance, John chapter number nine, the disciples kind of reveal that they've bought into the law of karma without understanding or realizing it. So Jesus and the disciples are walking around and they see a blind man sitting on the side of the road begging for money. And the disciples, they have the audacity. Go read this for yourself. John chapter number nine. Bible's crazy, you guys. John chapter number nine. The, the, The disciples have the audacity to say, Rabbi, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sins? Is he being punished for his own bad deeds or is he being punished for his parents' bad deeds? Again, what? Who says such a thing? Jesus responds and he's basically like, are you kidding me? This man was not born blind because of his sins or because of his parents' sins. This man was born blind so that the power of God could be revealed in him this day. Jesus said, this man has suffered, but he suffered so that my mercy and grace can be put on display in his life. It isn't a transaction. It isn't a punishment. It is about my sovereign way of operating the world in in such a way that my mercy and my grace and my wisdom is put on display for everyone to see. God deals with us according to the principle of grace and not the law of karma. Listen to how the apostle Paul kind of dismantles the law of karma in Romans chapter number three. Very famous passage. It's not going to be on the screen. So you're just going to have to listen along with me as I read Romans 3, 21 through 28. Listen to this. Scripture says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. Paul essentially says, God has shown us that it is possible to be blessed without always being, hey, behaving. 
It's possible that God will give us good gifts even if we don't deserve it. And the ultimate example of this is that God has given us salvation, new life in Jesus, even though we don't deserve it. We are made right with God by doing right. Staying faithful when life gets hard. Always staying in the lines and obeying the... No. Paul says we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Do you understand? You could be the most righteous person in this room. You could be the best man or woman here. You could be the best man or woman in the city of Calgary. In the end, the only way that you're going to be made right with God is by accepting Jesus as your savior and his death on your behalf to pay for your sins. Paul says, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. We can skip on down just a little bit. And the scripture says this, God did all of this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just. That's the top part of the triangle. We ain't giving up on that. He is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. The law of karma says you make yourself right in God's sight. You behave so that you can be blessed. You serve so that you can be saved. But the gospel flips all of that on its head. The principle of grace is that you are already loved. God has already sacrificed for you. God has already accepted you in Jesus. You don't have to do anything because you can't do anything. We are made right because God makes us right. There is no law of karma. There is no transactional relationship with God. You cannot manipulate him with your behavior. And hey, God actually won't manipulate you with his blessing in order to get the behavior he wants out of you. He doesn't operate that way. He operates on such a better level. It's the principle of grace and not the law of karma. In fact, I just believe there's somebody here in the room and you're saying, this is the kind of relationship with God I need. Like I need a relationship with God that is based on mercy and grace. I need to know that God loves me despite my sinfulness. I am tired of feeling like I'm always trying to stay within the lines so that God can be happy and I'll go to heaven when I die and everything will be okay here on earth. It's exhausting and I'm ready to walk away. I understand that feeling because you weren't meant to have that kind of relationship with God. The relationship you were meant to have with God is one in which you trust that he loves you always fully and completely. Even when you're not very lovable, he still loves you. I tell you guys all the time, God's love. The Bible says God is love. Bible actually never says y'all are lovable. Doesn't say that. (laughs) God's love is based on his character and not our behavior. It is a principle of grace and not a law of karma. And so if you're here and you say, this is the kind of relationship with God I've been searching for my entire life, all you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is place your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the Bible says you will change the way that you see God and it'll change the way that you see the world around you. So I invite everyone in the room, bow your heads, close your eyes, please. If that's you, if you say, I need this kind of grace-based relationship with God, then I want you to repeat this prayer in your heart to God after me. Dear Jesus, today I accept you as my Savior. I pray that you would forgive me of my sins And I thank you for dying so that I could have life. I pray that you would help me to see you clearly and to live for you fully from this day forward. I pray this in your name. 
Amen. Guys, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, you have begun a relationship with God through Jesus. And that's the way I started. It's the way everybody else started. And nothing is the same after this moment. We want to help you in your journey. But, but I know I hate it when pastors do this. Like, oh, he's wrapping up. Cool. We can start gathering up our things. No, I actually want to leave you with two quick principles. Okay. And I promise you they're quick. I promise. Okay. Two principles based on this realization that God deals with us according to grace and not karma. First one is this. You've got to remember, write this down. Remind yourself all the time. The presence of problems on earth does not prove God's anger in heaven. Just because things are going badly in my life doesn't mean that God is punishing me. It doesn't mean that I'm out of his will. It doesn't mean that I've chosen incorrectly or I am involved in sin. Too many of us carry the same mindset that Job's friends did, that if things aren't going right, he must be angry with me and I've got to appease him somehow. Jesus has already appeased. Jesus has already paid for our punishment. He's taking care of all of it. He's been punished for every sin we've been committed so that we could be set free from the penalty of our sin. Listen, to put it in modern terms, I can be confident and I can say, because of the work of Jesus, I got 99 problems, but the wrath of God ain't one, okay? No matter what, I get up every morning and I don't view God as like the the big guy that's ready to squash me with this thumb. I view him as my heavenly father who loved me so much that he went to unimaginable lengths so that I could be forgiven and saved and redeemed and brought back into a relationship with him. The presence of problems here on earth does not mean that God is somehow angry and punishing me. Hey, can we flip that on the other side? This is true and you need to know this. I don't have any time to talk about it. I just want you to marinate. I want you to think. I want you to chew on this for this week. The presence of good things in your life is not proof that everything is right in your life. Are you with me? We have a tendency to go through seasons in which everything is just going along so swimmingly. And we're like, okay, I must be doing great. I don't need to address. I don't need to adjust. And you know what ends up happening? We actually drift away from God because we assume we're good. But God doesn't operate uh, according to a law of karma. He operates according to a principle of grace. Hey, can I give you a specific way that this plays out? A specific way that this, this truth plays out is when you hold on to sins that God says he's already forgiven you for. Oh man, I just, I can't tell you how many pastoral meetings I have. And, and people are like, you know, I just still feel so guilty about what I did. And it's like, I've prayed and I've asked God to forgive me, but like, I don't know, I'm afraid he hasn't. Do you, do you trust what the scripture says? First John tells us, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is it possible that you're remembering sins that God has already forgotten? You bring it up. You're like, God, that, I slept with that girl. I'm so sorry. I'm, I just keep apologizing. I don't know when I'm ever going to apologize enough. And he's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Hebrews chapter number eight, verse 12. God is speaking to his people and he says this, I will forgive their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. You're holding on to this sin and you're saying, God, are you gonna forgive me? I need to let go. I wanna forget. I wanna forget. I wanna let go. God is saying, what are you talking about? I already forgave you. Why are you holding on to that? That's a tactic of your spiritual enemy. He wants you to be obsessed with sins that God has already forgiven. I'm not saying go sin and do whatever you want because God's going to forgive you anyway. But when you sin, when you repent, when you bring it to God, trust what he says and live in freedom. Second principle is this. You don't need more friends 
you need more godly friends. You need friends who are going to be like Job chapter two friends, who are going to be there when life falls apart, who are going to love you and support you and pray for you. They're going to encourage you. They're going to challenge you. They're going to be there when you need them the most. You don't need friends whose uh, the thing that you share in common with them is your mutual hatred of the Edmonton Oilers, okay? You need a deeper foundation for your relationship than that. You need shared faith in Christ. You need a shared experience in the transforming power of the gospel. Surround yourself with some people who know what God can do who are faithful in God's power and his providence in your life. And I promise you, you will start to see your situation transform. So let me, let me ask you this question. Um, I've asked you this before. And so forgive me for asking again, why do you run out of here so fast after we say the closing amen? You know, it's not a race, right? Like our parking lot team doesn't have a checkered flag and like the first person out wins the race. <laughs> You know, the restaurants are still going to be there. They're not going to run out of food, right? You know that. Sometimes we just get, it's like, okay, I got to get out of here because it's awkward or I got plenty of other things to get to. But then we sit around and we're like, why don't I have any godly friends? Well, maybe it's because you're not actually sticking around in the most godly environment in your life. So like I challenged you in that message a few months ago, what if you just hung out 10, 15 minutes and yeah, it's going to be awkward. And I don't know, maybe you're going to have to engage with somebody or somebody weird is going to come talk to you. I get it. I get it. I get it. But the blessing of godly friendships is worth the effort. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you this question. I, I mentioned this last week or the week before. And I, again, I'm sorry to ask it again, but why sign up for a connect group if you're never going to go? Like you don't get any credit for putting your name on the sheet. Yeah. Your friendships are not going to happen just because you said, oh, I signed up for the Connect Serve group or the Airdrie Hang group. If you don't go, then it's not surprising that you never have any godly friendships. So like, even if you signed up and you've never gone, it's not too late. Even if you didn't sign up, it's not too late to get plugged into a group because those godly friends are the friends that you need. You are surrounded. This is a room full of godly people. All of them want to help you grow into the person that God created you to be. And so I'm asking you to be open to that. God, would you bless the reading of your word today? Would you remind us of your grace and mercy and help us to live according to the principle of grace and never to work ourselves back under the law that we've been set free from. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.